everyone, it's Jeff Anderson and Buck Green, and we're here with the Modern Combat and Survival's Friday Reload podcast, where we just go over this week's kind of down and dirty tips from the blogs and your comments to be able to just discuss what happened this week, what we know because of it, and just kind of give you the Cliff Notes version so you don't have to go in and, and read the whole blog. So let me, uh, let me go ahead and get started with uh, the first post that we did this week was actually a self-defense post that we haven't been doing a lot of. And this was a guest post from Mike Gillette, who's got an amazing uh, DVD out there. There's a link over to the DVD on the, uh, on the blog post itself. And the topic of it was, or the title of the blog post, if you want to go back and read it, is Gang Member All Up In Your Face, Use This Vicious Street Fighting Tactic to Destroy Him. And essentially, this was meant to be like a psychological breakdown. Like, how do you psychologically crush an attacker, no matter how big or vicious or badass that they are? And this is this is this is a part physical technique, and it's part psychological. And essentially, it's very very simple. It's not a very complicated thing to do, but it is it is vicious and it is counter, I guess, intuitive to what most people would do. So most people, if you're in front of somebody and you decide, okay, I need to fight back. Uh, you'll tend to just go for the haymaker punch. Like that's just instinctually built into people. With this one, with this technique from Mike, what he does is he tells you to thrust your hands up into somebody's face and just dig your fingers into any part of their face that you can get your your fingers on and just rip, gouge, and tear. And the theory behind this is that People who are, uh, especially like an experienced street fighter who is like a gang member, who gets into a lot of fights, typically they're used to punching it out, right? It's it's like boxing, it's like street boxing, or and 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 it's dirty and it's nasty, but it's it's a different sense when your body. I mean, your body, his body can be conditioned, his brain can get conditioned to being punched or defending against a punch. But when you've got somebody's fingers digging into your eyes or ripping your nose or ripping your ears or ripping your lips off, that shuts down the brain. Like that is a, a, a crisis point that shuts down the brain. It takes it from fighting back or trying to attack you to just like, I need to get, I need to get my face away from being ripped and torn off. And so this is a physical attack, but it's also a psychological attack. Again, it's a, it's a very simple thing to do, but we did have lots of comments on there and some really great ones about, because the question was like, what's your, you know, what's, uh, what is your, um, first strike move that you train with? And we did have some people on here who, you know, we get this a lot where we have, uh, older people that are on there, um, say, well, that, this is all great, but okay, well, what if I'm, you know, I'm an older woman and I'm in a wheelchair and, you know, what can I do? And, and we have to really be cautious. Like, I mean, obviously, I'm, if you're a, a, an older woman and you're in a wheelchair, you're not going to reach up and grab some biker's face with your with your fingernails and rip it off. It's it's not going to work. And so a lot of people come in and they say, well, you know, what you need is a as a 38 revolver. You need something, you know, something that you can carry as a weapon. I believe in that. I mean, first of all, if you've got some gang member getting up in the face of a of 78 year old woman in a wheelchair. I don't know. I don't know what his intention was with that. Like that's, I don't, I don't see them actually fighting that woman. That's not going to be really good. I think for street cred, like, Hey man, I just beat up this 78 year old woman in a wheelchair. Um, Grandma, you've got this time going to that biker bar. You know how rough that place is. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, but I, I look, I am, um, 
I do carry concealed. I uh, I do believe in in this, but we I think it's what I, what I what always bothers me about these is this is this reaction of well you know screw the hand to hand combat I've got my forty five and as we talk about in in when it comes to close quarters combat gunfights which the majority are going to be an attack is not going to happen from across the street or the ranges that people typically train at they're going to be right up in your face and think and moves like this and and mike knows this because mike is a super high level bodyguard not like the local guy down you know just kind of helps out the the barkeep down at the you know once in a while mike is a super high level bodyguard and and a team manager and a trainer and so he knows that you've got to be able to defend yourself with your hands in order to be able to get to your gun a lot of the time. And so I want to just caution people, like, don't always think that your gun is going to be there for you. It, it, it's typically not. And most people aren't carrying for a, um, you know, like they're not carrying a weapon. Well, I, don't, I won't go into the whole into the whole thing about close quarters combat shooting. Most people, let me just say that most people are not carrying the right weapon for a, for a real gunfight nor are they carrying it the right way to be able to get to it for um, a, a close quarters gunfight. So, I mean, that's, and we could go into that all day, but the point is here is that you have to know hand-to-hand, and Mike's Mike's tip on here is a really, really good one because it is so, so simple and easy. Yeah, that's a that's a technique that any beginner can do, too. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be old. This is a, something you can teach anybody. Like, just put your fingers on his face. And uh, anybody can learn to do that. We have multiple instructors in the ISCQC network, actually, who teach programs based around that concept. I know that um, uh, Richard Dimitri has yeah. a program called The Shredder, yeah. all about putting your fingers on his face. Uh, Sammy Franco does one called The Widowmaker, which I think is derived from The Shredder or inspired by it. Or the two, you know, Those two guys work together all the time, or they used to. So th- this is a valid concept that multiple instructors put forth as, as a technique that you can use. Yeah. And John uh, John is one of the commenters in here. And he talked about how he had a question, um, he, uh, he was told of a fight by his father. The guy um, grabbed somebody's ear who was much bigger than him. The guy was much bigger than him, grabbed his ear, and basically pulled it off and showed it to him. I'm not sure how much it, how much force it takes to <laughs> rip off an ear. Um, oh, that, that's one of those things that, that floats around. It takes only X pounds of pressure to rip off a human ear. Well, somebody did yeah. put in here. It takes 15 pounds of weight of force to do that. So, <laughs> well, but the best part about that is the chance to give like an Arnold line, like "Can you hear me now?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and and now it makes me want to go out. I mean, now that you think about it, because I've been told. In my very first martial arts classes, you know, on stomping on the foot, it takes eight and a half pounds of pressure to break those tiny bones. Like, I need to go down to the – do they have it at Home Depot where you can get, like, a pressure tester? Like, I can pull on something and it'll say, this is eight and a half pounds, or I can step on something? I mean, if I if I step on my – if I step on my scale where it says 8.5, that doesn't feel like it would do a lot of, of, you know, force and damage. Eight and a half pounds. Yeah, but when you think about it, your ears are just these useless flaps of cartilage on the side of your head. They ought to be easy to come off. Yeah, they should I mean, be. I'm not saying I like my own ears, but it's like you know, it's just kind of obvious. <laughs> they should be easy to take off. 
Well, and somebody else on here, and I, and I was trying to look for their comment, but said, you know, the lips. And, and, and what I, the thing about this is like, this is what I taught my son when he was young. Like, I'm not, I've taught my son, my son's self-defense, but I'm not so, you know, stupid to tell him, look, here's, you know, when you're facing a six foot tall, you know, pedophile who's 250 pounds, you know, to go ahead and, and, um, you know, punch him in this secret ninja, you know, death touch spot or whatever. Like he's, you know, he's eight years old. This kid's got, this guy's going to get manhandled. Him. But when he, can he get like to, a spider monkey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> up to the back of his, the back of his neck. But basically, I mean, you say like when you're, if I've, I have taught him that to dig his fingers in and go for the, the lips. I mean, the lips are a really good target because you can grab onto them and it's excruciating pain. And somebody did put in here, and I, I, want, I was trying to look and see who who had put it in here, but um, but the lips are very, I mean, excruciating pain. You grab that and just pull it down or pull it to the side. And and uh, and the ears, I guess, would be another good one. The eyes, if you can't see. I mean, we did have, uh, what was it? Uh, David Blakeman said, you know, you can't, you can't see, you can't fight. You can't breathe, you can't fight. If you're unconscious, you can't fight. And I like that. I mean, if you can't see, I mean, it's a natural reaction that when you get your eyes scratched or if you've ever gotten like a piece of sand in there, it's not something you can really ignore. So that's a real, especially if you are a woman, you have nails or something like that. You can, If you can scratch that eye, it is like getting sand thrown in your eye at, at the beach. So I just think there's there's all around really great technique with this very, very simple thing that's just it's vicious. It, it takes kind of a mental shift to be able to get yourself into it, especially I think if you're a guy because you think punch, punch, punch. But anyway, I thought this is just a really good technique from Mike, and I and I highly recommend his DVD and and check it out because Mike definitely knows his stuff from actual experience, being like being the bodyguard that he is. So good stuff. Uh, okay, Buck, what's up next? Well, one of the posts that I thought was most important, just because it's I think the biggest news item right now is, is an ISIS attack on the United States soil inevitable? Um, you know, we, we don't like to think that it could happen again. The, the anniversary of September 11th just happened. Uh, granted, the, the image on the blog where, like, the Statue of Liberty is lying there in flames, like, you know, the end of a Michael Bay movie, might be a little extreme, but the idea is, is very much realistic. You know, the idea that ISIS... Uh, could attack the United States in a significant way, it's got to come eventually. You know, we, we haven't seen a major terrorist attack since September 11th, 2001, but there have been plenty of instances where people who wanted to commit terrorist attacks were intercepted. Um, you know, a lot of them were relatively small scale, but it, all it takes is one guy to, you know, slaughter 50 people in a, a public market somewhere, and, you know, the, the game has changed. It, seen run-ups to this type of thing over and over again, and thank God they've been prepared, but uh, basically the lesson is terrorists are patient. Terrorists are known for their planning. Uh, typically, there's a seven-year planning period between major attacks. We're way overdue for a major one, and basically, as much as we hate to admit it, as much as we hate to say it's coming, um, we're on the schedule, and we'd be crazy to think that there aren't a lot of people out there just thinking, how do we top that? How do we do another major terrorist attack to bring evil America to its knees? And part of being a prepared citizen, part of being a survivalist, is to be 
prepared for these things that you can't anticipate. Well, you know, when it comes to emergencies and disasters and, and civil unrest, you, maybe you can't anticipate those. But you'd be nuts not to be anticipating a terrorist attack that day when suddenly the cell phone grid is down because everybody's trying to call their loved ones and, uh, you know, everybody's freaking out. I can remember during the Northeast blackout that happened a few years after September 11th. That's the first thing everybody thought was the power's off everywhere. It must be terrorism. Mm. Um, and we've seen in the news instances where, where there have been attacks on our power grid that they've kind of underplayed in the media. So, oh, no, it was no big deal. It just didn't get the press that it should have. Like, hey, people were planning how to attack our power. And, and as you've said in multiple posts, our grid is held together with duct tape and hope. Yeah. So there's yeah. any number of ways that a terrorist attack could successfully be carried out. Yeah, and I think uh, part of you know part of this post was about the complacency that we have, and you know because we we take for granted because things haven't like a major attack hasn't happened in so long that everything must be fine or that our government's taking care of it, and we and we do have look we we have learned lessons since nine eleven, but um, pe- people are are this is why we prepare. I mean that was the whole I guess the whole ending of that post was like you know be don't think it's over. You 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 need to be prepared. This is why we're survivalists because that planning that happens um, when it when it happens it happens big time and there is an infiltration happening right now. I, I, there was a military briefing that I don't know if I was supposed to be privy to or not, so I won't I won't identify the source. But the military is being briefed on um, right now. There is. A coal—I don't want to say a coalition, but a, a a joining of like ISIS and terrorist groups and the Mexican coyotes that are smuggling people over the border. And the report is that the cartels can get one million will get one million dollars for every every one of that or, of the organization's members over over the border and safely into the United States. And that that's happening, like that's just a standard thing. Like, hey, we're going to keep feeding you people. For everyone that you actually get over, you get a million dollars. And I've seen enough, you know, I, I've been to Mexico enough and uh, worked in uh, Juarez in security detail and, and management and uh, in a Mexico City to know that these people, like, all you, I'm, I stopped listening after a million dollars. Like, whatever, just <laughs> stick somebody in my trunk, I'll get them there. A million dollars is, is is all they care about. And so, and I just saw this movie. I mean, it was a movie movie, you know, but it was a, I don't remember the name of the movie. I, it, it's a relatively new movie, but it was about this this guy that um that came over the border and, and, um, to, for, he was Mexican, came over for work, you know, he smuggled himself over the border, but then he got picked up for um, murder and his wife was trying to come over and the coyotes in order to go see him and try to save him or whatever. And, and she was brought over by coyotes who held her captive. Like the coyotes mission was like they bring, you know, these 20 people over, but then they hold them captive until their families pay a ransom. And there's all sorts of unspeakable things that happen in between there, but the reason I bring it up is that in the movie, two of the people that were smuggled over in the subtitles, it mentioned speaking Farsi. And so even in this fictional movie, they're putting in there that, you know, we have, it's not just Mexicans that are coming over our border. So, 
you know, we as and and this is a propaganda war by ISIS. So I mean, they're showing videos of you know like driving by the White House and things like that to show them like we're already here, like. You should be afraid, and this is a bit, this is a big propaganda thing. They're showing images of of New York burning in order to draw more people in, and it's working. They're getting they're getting recruits from all over Europe, and they're and they're showing videos of them taking their their passports and ripping them up and putting them in fire. They have people from the United States, you know, U.S. citizens who are joining, people from Mexico who are joining, people from Asia. There was that news story about these two girls who became basically ISIS fighters, and it didn't work out like they were hoping it would. But, you know, when it comes down to it, when, when just ordinary, industrialized Western women, people who come from middle-class backgrounds, essentially, can become what they call radicalized, that's terrifying to me. Like, what about any of that is appealing? You know, like, like one minute you're, you're doing Facebook and, and, and talking about shopping, which I guess shows you how in touch I am with the mindset of an average teenage girl. But, you know, one minute it's with MySpace and, and, you know, Twitter, and then the next minute you you want to murder people. I don't get it. Well, I think, and what I've seen so much in, in, in working with, like, gangs and stuff like that when, when I was doing security details was that it's just people want a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves or, or feeling like they have family, especially in areas where they don't have a family, like gang members, oftentimes their gang is their family, not their parents, whether they're going through a teenage rebellious stage or whether they have abusive parents or whatever, they tend to turn toward gangs because they know that like they'll always be there for them. Like that's, it's, it's more predominant inside the gang than it is inside of a family because, you know, kids often think that, you know, well, my, you know, my my family, you know, does they, they don't understand me, they don't trust me, they don't whatever, but my my gang mem- my gang family does. And it's the, kind of the same thing. I mean, it's when you're especially when there's something so devout that you can you can stand for even if it isn't something you don't stand for sometimes that allure of being part of something where you know people are all, are never going to leave you. They're always going to, you know, they've got your back and you are a true family. I think that that is an allure. And there is, look, there is a lot of hatred against the United States around around the world. There just is. And and, and some sometimes, I mean, it's certainly justified. I mean, we've gone in there and, I mean, that's how we started in, you know, in um, Al-Qaeda got started. We, we were... We were friends with them. We were helping them against the Russians, and all of a sudden, it's like, no, 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 wait, we're friends with the Russians, and and now, sorry, and then they got their asses kicked, right? So, I mean, whether it's we're helping Israel or you know this ISIS's goal from from people who have defected from ISIS, they said that their goal is to create an Islamic state, and then an Islamic region in the Middle East, and then an Islamic world. Like they're not stopping, and they've got missiles, and they and they're they're getting equipment, and um, and so a lot of the discussion now is like, well, do we put boots on the ground? What do we do? And you know, everybody's sick and tired of war. I can I can only say, and I I can only say from what I felt as being in the military, there were times where look, I, I go wherever I'm ordered to go, right? But you know, when we were when when Kuwait was going on, I knew it was about oil. I knew it was about oil. I, we could say whatever we wanted to about um, about 
it was you know to free the people or whatever and it was in you know in Kuwait I mean they were they were invaded by Iraq but I also knew it was about oil however when the ethnic cleansing was going on in Bosnia you know we didn't do anything for so so long and it's like I was itching to get over there because I believe in in the United States as you know, kind of the, the the guys in the white hats. I believe in what we stand for. I am patriotic about that, and I do believe that where there's wrong in the world, I would I would like to right the wrongs, especially when they're as as vicious and freaking just like they make my skin crawl. What this what ISIS is doing? You are going to get more mail about this than you think about the time people <laughs> said you love Kim Jong Il. I'm just picturing the email, man. Yeah, I know. I know. And like, I, not everybody, I can say that where my heart is, is like when I see people doing this, beheading Americans, I, I want to strap on the boots now. I want, I want to get over there because I want, I feel like I want to do something, you know? And I think most, most military people, whether they're, they're war weary or not, feel that way. And, and look, war sucks. I mean, I've been in it. It, it, it sucks being away from your family. It sucks watching your friends die. I mean, it does. Um, but I think soldiers just have inherently inside of them this sense of 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 justice and, and wanting to I mean there's a pride in in fighting for what's right and and the and even if that means sacrifice. And so I mean that's how I've always felt and that's how you know, I don't know how I feel about this yet or even even how much of a threat they actually are, because really they don't they don't have a lot of resources. Um but well, it, the, actually, that's, that's something of a misconception. ISIS has oil money because they essentially control portions of Iraq and Syria. So yeah. they, they actually don't have the same financial needs that some terrorist groups have. Like they're not in it for the fundraising, so to speak, because they've got money already. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, these are terrorists. They're, they don't have anything like the resources that the United States government has. And that's true. But these guys actually have some money, and, and that's terrifying. They do have that. You're right. But like their propaganda video that they just put out, the one minute long thing, was really just a lot of like a lot of editing magic with you know explosions. <laughs> oh. and they kept showing yeah, like the same clips over and over again. Like so, you know, I don't, I don't. But it is a force to be reckoned with. It is growing greatly, and this is not this is not your you know your daddy's uh, Al Qaeda. <laughs> you know, this is. This is different, and it's a signal of, I think, you know, again, of of how life has changed, and and you know, we're we're living in a different world. Yeah. Well, sorry, I know this was meant to be the down and dirty, just like short version of everything, and it's like, but this this is important stuff. So anyway, um, okay. So next up on the uh, next up on the list is is the U.S. government continuing to conduct? a secret gun control program. Now, some of this is kind of old news, so it goes back to, this was a guest post by, um, by somebody who has a program on basically how to, how to um, be independent with the ammunition, like how to, how to take care of your own ammo needs, essentially. Uh, Keith Jacobs is a the person, there's a link over to his website over there. So some of this is kind of old news in that in 2013, the Department of Homeland Security was a big furor over them ordering 1.6 billion rounds of ammo. Um, which was, um, according to the ar an article in Forbes magazine, that was 20 times the amount of am ammo used in any year of the Iraqi war, yet it was purchased for future use on American soil. Um, 
so this is kind of a, a little bit of rehashing like that of why you need to why you need to kind of take care of your own ammo needs and in however you do that and that there's there could continue to still be scarcity going on into the future and there are some things so what i got of this um from from keith's post though was some things that i didn't know um maybe just because i was i don't i don't like to watch a lot of the news sometimes but um but that the the u.s post office put in order to purchase um small arms ammunition and then social security administration ordered ordered um I think it was it was 170 what was it, 174,000 I think it was rounds of hollow point jacketed hollow point bullets uh 357 uh sig 125 grain bonded jacketed hollow point bullets and so you know I looked I looked that up just to kind of dig into it a little bit more and the social security administration did respond to that saying well that's for the practice rounds for our agents and I did the math on it and that would be it was like it was 590 rounds per agent that they have and and it was for practice and i i mean i don't know if anybody that that goes through like that uses expensive hollow point ammunition for just for regular practice so 590 rounds of hollow point ammunition just seemed like it, it didn't jive for me like i know that there's you, like anybody could say like this is a conspiracy theorist you know bullshit or they there could be like it it's always going to be in this gray zone like right right like what's the real intentions because there's no smoking gun document saying you know we need 590 rounds of the social security administration to be able to take down citizens as we're putting them over into fema camps or whatever so like i realize there's always going to be a gray area here but i always look for like the logic like to me that just doesn't seem logical and and we always talk about like like look if if the u.s government is preparing for collapse shouldn't you be also and for me there always seems to be these these little signs out there like mm, something's weird here you know when local police departments have mrap vehicles mm, something's weird here and well, there, go ahead two ways to look at this the, the, there's the is the government buying up all of its ammo through multiple government agencies simply as a way of reducing the amount of ammo available on the market, which is one of the theories floated in, in Keith's uh, video? Right. Or is, is it that they're preparing for what must be a massive movement against its own citizens because they're like, like what is it they need all that ammo for? There isn't a government agent in the world who practices to the tune of hundreds of rounds of ammo a month. Yeah. You know, they just don't. The average government operative treats his gun like a cell phone. It's part of something he does. You know, he has it to do his job, but they're not gun people, not for the most part. If you watch, I remember there was an early episode of Cops when the, when the show first became popular. And the guy who eventually, it, it's that uh, that sheriff who eventually did the narration for like world's craziest police chases. Yeah. And he has, he's found, he's recovered a gun, a drug dealer's gun, like a, a desert eagle with a massive laser sight on it because this was, you know, quite a few years ago. <laughs> and he had to hand it to one of the guys on his team because he didn't know how to clear it. Like that was how ignorant this guy was of firearms. He had to find the gun guy on his team and say, Hey, uh, take a round out of the chamber of this, would you? Because, yeah. because that's, you know, the average uh, law enforcement officer and the average government agent, they're just not gun people. But, you know, they'll do as they're told and don't get yourself into thinking that, you know, when, when ordered to uh, gun down people in the streets, they're going to go, Oh, I couldn't possibly. People tend to do what they're told. People tend to respond to their authority structure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and thanks for bringing me back to the actual point of this article, which was, you know, is this a a gun? Is it is it the government's goal to, you know, if we if we can't get rid of the guns, let's get rid of the ammunition. Like, let's make it really scarce to do that. And you know, so the whole the point of it is that um, regardless, ammo ammo is scarce. It has been really really scarce in the past, and with some things that are con- uh, continuing to happen can be scarce in the future, like the closing down of a lead smelting plant because they weren't able to keep up expense-wise with the um, lead smelting, with the um, with the EPA's standards. Now, the only way to get in the, um, a lot of this lead is through uh, imports into yeah. other, you know, from other countries in order to make ammunition and, 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 uh, and, and other goods. So, you know, it's going to become that, that basically because there is a government, um, a government filter that those imports need to come through to through taxes and tariffs, and now it's a part of importing export um, regulations and things like that. It does give the government more control over what's available for ammunition. So, so it would make sense for you to really, really take care of your own ammo needs. And um, and Keith has a has a good program on that, and so the link is over there on the blog post to check it out if you want to. All right, Buck, what's the last one? The one that I uh, particularly liked, uh, and you know, bringing it back to a more positive uh, outlook, uh, MCS Podcast Six: Building Survival Teams with Charlie Hogwood. I thought was a great podcast. I enjoyed listening yeah. to it. Um, you know, Charlie covered things like uh, why. If you think you're just going to become Rambo in a survival strategy, that's probably not a long-term, uh, a sustainable philosophy. Um, he talked about, you know, the the infrastructure roles that we take for granted, the types of skill sets that you should seek out when you're building your team. Um, you know, things like armed defense. You know, how to protect your team from violence and chaos. Uh, what garage sales have to do with a collapse and the best person to do your survival shopping. What I liked about the podcast was it said, look, you can't do everything. You can't be everybody. You have to find uh, and assemble a survival team. And and this might, you know, it's not like you're putting together the A team. It might simply be identifying the roles that your different family members can do and seeing to it that they all understand what they're what their position in the group is going to be for long-term survivability. But I just love the idea of playing to people's strengths and using the talents of the group of people you have to better survive over the long term. Um, there was a, a fellow named David Richardson. I swear I've seen that name before in the comments on the podcast. Oh, a um, lot. I mean, Dave's one of our, our most prolific commenters. And he always has really great, um, really great comments in there. And I, and I, I always look. Actually, I've subscribed to his comments, so I can always go in and see what he's what he's posting. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote something that I thought was particularly good. He said, uh, "Even Doc from Back to the Future needed the young teenager Marty McFly to go scavenge things for him. If you could find someone who had been in the silent service, quote unquote, they are like a Swiss Army knife of talent. Uh, first, whether they were a high rank, like captain or a chief of the boat, or just a cook, not necessarily Steven Seagal, which is a." A reference to under siege. Uh, everyone who serves on a submarine goes through the rigorous cross training necessary to get their dolphins because the entire boat can be lost if someone trapped in a sealed compartment can't solve a problem on their own. Uh, not just those actual skills, but the mindset of constant and continuous cross training of everyone is a true force multiplier in a mutual assistance group. 
I thought just thought that was a, a great insight. Yeah, and that's, you know, and having gone through the military, I mean, one of the first things you learn in basic training are common task training. You know, so you always have your CTT training, which is just a collection of everything from first aid to dealing with nuclear contamination. Um, it, you know, it's, um, it's just, it's, it's their, their common tasks that any soldier might have to do. And so that cross training is really, really critical, but there are things that you're good at and there are things that you're not good at. Common tasks are things that every soldier should know, but then there's the MOS specialties, right? Like, you know, you have your cooks in the military, you have your mechanics. And I knew going in the military, I was never going to be a mechanic because I'm just, I do not have that skill. And that's what I put in my comments in there was that, you know, I know I'm good at defense. I'm good at, um, at, uh, like, um, oper like military operations and, and missions and planning and, and execution. But I, I am horrible with vehicles. I don't, and I don't even care to be, be good at it because I, I know I'm horrible at it and I'm horrible at carpentry. In fact, um, when I interviewed, I uh, actually interviewed, did a video interview with Charlie at the Self-Reliance Expo and I was going over like, who are the people that we should be looking for? And he was like, a mechanic. And I was like, well, that's good because I suck at being a mechanic. And he's like, and you want somebody with carpentry skills? Like, you know what? I suck at carpentry. So it, I remember going back to this video, like I just, it's just me saying how much I suck at everything other than pulling a trigger. <laughs> and um, so that really, and that really got me thinking about, about my team. And, and Joe Fox is another person that really got me thinking outside of the box as well on this because um, I'm, I suck at so many things that in an ongoing crisis, I, I need somebody to fill in those gaps because otherwise I would be I'm screwed. I'm going to isolate that audio. I'm going to isolate that audio and put it in our next podcast scandal. Jeff Anderson sucks at everything. <laughs> <laughs> I can always I love Kim Jong Un. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad you can pull out all these little tidbits for me. Just, um, yeah, this is gonna. We're gonna just do a podcast on the things I suck at. But Jeff um, Anderson hates the Statue of America <laughs> or uh, Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah, that's why I posted that picture from ISIS. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> and what's Jeff Anderson trying to sell you? Is Jeff Anderson trying to sell you the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> I'll just, yeah, I'll just set it on fire with some 151 rum first, you know, little statues of the of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> oh, that's it. I'm doing something like that. I'm going to find a Statue of Liberty uh, statue. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so that's what happened this week on the blog. And now we'll quickly go into the what do you know. This is the time where we uh, where Buck and I just kind of go over the stuff that we've been, been learning all week uh, in our own little – you know, sh window shopping around the internet or, or on the comments and everything and to see what what we know this week that we didn't know last week that could be useful to you. So Buck, we'll go ahead and start with you. What did, what did you what did you learn this week that you didn't know the week before? Well, I, I hate to end this on kind of a negative, but, you know, we tend to think that maybe survivalism and uh, quote-unquote prepping, although I've never really liked that term, are becoming mainstream. You know, there's TV shows, there's uh, a greater awareness of the need to be a prepared uh, citizen. Uh, and especially when you have a lot of friends who are also involved in this sort of thing and you feel a little more freedom to talk about it, even though you probably shouldn't, uh, we tend to think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's becoming more acceptable, it's becoming more mainstream. But all it takes is one incident to remind you that, no, to society at large, survivalists are weirdos and dangerous. And what I'm referring to is this 
guy in Pennsylvania who shot a state trooper in some sort of like I hate the police ambush. Um, they're they're basically they've made him into like this super sniper who uh, you know he's out there just like Rambo and they, they can't catch him and he's incredibly dangerous and they they interviewed his father and he's like my son kills whatever he aims at. It's it's become this big ridiculous thing where you know they've even talked about how he's a member of a military simulation unit, which means he fucking plays airsoft. Okay. It's either that or it's paintball or it's something like that. But in the media, it's like, Oh my God, he once pretended to use a gun and now he's doing it in real life. And all of it comes back to survivalists, survivalists, survivalists. They're just hammering that word and making it synonymous with armed nuts out to kill the police. Mm. Um, so it basically it's a wake up call that, you need to not be talking about your individual preparations. You don't want your neighbors to know that you are prepared and that you have weapons and things like that because they will turn on you in a heartbeat. Um, there was an incident in New York just recently where a guy got arrested because uh, basically he had, we have these ridiculous anti-assault weapon laws in New York where basically everything's illegal. And you could buy, but they thought uh, legally a, an AR-15 that had been converted to what they call a bullet button AR-15 so that you can't remove the magazine easily. Uh, it, it's sort of a fixed magazine, although not really. Well, this guy modified his bullet button AR-15 so that he could swap the magazines in and out the way God intended. And when a couple of his neighbors had a domestic violence incident and the cops showed up, the neighbors ratted him out and said, well, uh, yeah, we may be beating on each other, but the guy upstairs, he's got an assault rifle. Well, how... How did they know that? Why would your neighbors know that? If your neighbors are in a position to be able to rat you out for that, you fail. You know, there's, there's no way they should have known that. And, and it's like, uh, it, you know, that is a small reminder of the greater threat overall, which is you don't want people to know that you are a quote-unquote survivalist, especially in a day and an age when, you know, all, all it takes is one news incident and suddenly survivalists are these evil monsters. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And we, that, that theme comes up a lot in the stuff that we do because we're trying to really hammer home the need to, you know, like, unfortunately, we are in a time where you, where you need to keep things close to the vest. And it's unfortunate, um, but it's definitely necessary, you know. So uh, for me this week, um, what I learned was a, a, a new, uh, we, you know, we have a program called Dirt Cheap Gun Training, which is all about, like, basically – how you can do tactical training and different drills that you can do at home to stay proficient with your firearm without having to go down to the range, wait in line, spend money on bullets and things like that. And um, so it was a really cool drill that I saw this week, or actually I, I got the idea from, uh, from something else. And then I thought, I thought of the rest by myself, but it was um, unless, I don't know, somebody else might've already heard this or something, but um, basically it's kind of like bingo. Um, and I thought of two different versions of this. So, you know, we have, we use Airsoft. I use Airsoft a lot in, in home tactical training. And I've got a, like a, a mini range in my garage and stuff like that, like a shoot, a shooting range sort of a thing. But in order to, um, in order to, it, it, part of, uh, part of being in a, in a gunfight is being able to quickly identify a target and bring your weapon onto target and shoot that target and condition yourself to as, as, as much as you possibly can, where where it's a sighted distance, to use your sights accurately to be able to get to be able to get a hit. Um, however, we always talk about one of the challenges of that is that 
with the adrenaline flowing, your brain is not, you know, you're not thinking calmly. It's, it's panic mode often. And you, you have to try to get control of that shoot, don't shoot decision, as well as a target identification and things like that. You're juggling a lot of things. So what we did was um, we created this uh, dry fire bingo and created these, um, these cards that were like a bingo card. So there's numbers all over the place on it, just like a bingo card is. And so then what you do is you have somebody call out a number and you quickly have to identify what that is. Now this, we put this on like a butcher pad. So it's, it's actually, you know, it's, a, it's not a, an eight and a half by 11 sort of a, a bingo card. It's like the butcher block that you make it on. So it's still not a very big area um, that you're, that you're looking at. It's not like you're, you're shifting your eyes like left and right by several degrees to be able to identify a target. But what it does is it puts your brain into the mode of, of quickly, I need to identify something, whether that's a target on like where you're going to shoot on the person in front of you, or if, whether it's just identifying a target or shoot, don't shoot or whatever. So calling out the number and just like bingo, you've got to quickly find that number and, and hit that. The other thing that we, we did was, um, to, to call out like a larger number, like, um, a hundred, 120. And then what you've got to do is you've got to go through and shoot in those spaces. Like we use, we use airsoft, but shoot in those spaces that would add up to the number that you call out. And that requires a lot more like math juggling. And you know, you've got to be able to really think about it. Um, which, which again, puts your mind, it kind of recreates that sort of like a panic mode, like that, like that confusion and trying to figure something out is a way that you can, you can really kind of as, as best you can add a little bit more realism to dry fire rather than just there's target point gun, pull trigger. So, um, anyway, this is something we're just, we just been having fun with. Uh, we thought up this past week and, um, anyway, thought I'd share it with everybody. So, uh, and, and if you, um, I, I'm a big fan of these, of all sorts of these type, types of drills, um, to do a shameless plug. We've got uh, dirtcheapguntraining.com is where we have all of our all of our drills that we uh, that we offer. And there's some really great stuff in here between force on force and stuff you can do at home and and uh, how to build your own tactical range at home. And it's just it's one of my favorite programs that we have. So anyway, Jeff Anderson likes things dirty and cheap. What's hiding? <laughs> Sorry, now I can't stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So I guess, I, again, I always keep saying, you know, this is like the down, this, the quick down and dirty of what happened this week, but I don't know, maybe this week I just, it riled me up thinking about this stuff. So anyway, we're at about 45 minutes into the broadcast. So uh, hopefully people are getting enough enjoyment about everything I suck at and everything that I love. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks so much for joining us for, uh, for this time and uh, look for some really, really cool stuff. And we've got another great podcast coming up next week. I hope you're getting a lot out of those because I love doing them and I love learning from, from our network and everything. So, so uh, anyway, more to follow. Uh, this is uh, until our next broadcast. This is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Green. Saying train hard. Stay safe. Prepare now. Thanks everyone. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. 
You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.